to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh, who knows, and goes straight on. This is quite appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Unqualified. G is here, uh, I am here, and we are both here in rare form on a Monday night following a race, maybe publishing an episode uh, on a timely basis. Uh, I'm so excited. Gerald, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, I think this race exceeded everyone's expectations in terms of actual content. But before we do that, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't cover the current news that broke this morning, which is... What in the hell? Fernando Alonso is going to his fifth team in Formula One officially and moving to Aston Martin next year. Uh, no less two days on the heels of Sebastian Vettel's retirement announcement. Uh, I don't even know how to tee up a question on this. <laughs> what was your reaction? I think shocked by the timing. It seemed earlier than I would have expected. Um I guess, especially with the introduction of his, his Instagram account, uh, we, in retrospect, we should have realized it was either, you know, one end of the spectrum or the other, as he was diving even deeper. And this was a way to sort of bring in Sebastian Vettel 2.0 into the F1 world or a, a door into something new. And it turns out it was the door into something new. So the, the long awaited Vettel, uh, Instagram will have to be for something other than F1, but, um, earlier than expected was i shocked overall uh no not really i think the way the season had been going he wasn't really on form the car wasn't on form it seemed like weekend in and out even at times where they had pace like some of the the rain practices it just never brought it together in qualifying or the races in any meaningful way and i think you know once you've been on the mountaintop that's probably not the not where you want to be spending all your days. So, um, this hurts me to say, but stroll stroll was matching his pace and as that all that can't feel good. So, yeah, look, I think if he was driving on a, on a less than stellar car and still beating his teammate pretty soundly, especially a teammate that receives plenty of criticism for their, you know, overall level of skill. That's one thing, but yeah, to be neck and neck or bested, even on on race day many times um yeah that that would probably got tiresome so i liked his announcement video though i mean i thought it was like a cool dramatic way to go out i don't think you get get that very often other than like the the stuffy like announcement to the to the press corps and then the immediate questions after so um it was a cool it was a cool take what do you think he's gonna do with the second life or maybe not even specifically, because that's really hard to say. But like, obviously, when everybody says that they are going to spend more time with their family, they got a little bit of Urban Meyer in them, right? Like, they're not actually <laughs> like they're <laughs> they got something else in mind. So, like, what do you you have any guesses? What do you think that would be for Seb? I don't know. I, they also live such a crazy life in which they are away from home so much. I wouldn't be surprised that you do want to sit around and just hang out for a while. So I could see that, but it also it's so accessible once you've been at that caliber of, of motorsport to go into, 
basically any class after that. So I wouldn't be surprised if he goes into a, a lower class that's a little bit more either local or a little bit more hobbyist. Or he, I mean, he's so well liked as also. You could see him going into the to the broadcast game as well. I don't think that would be surprising to anybody. How about I you? Think, What's on the horizon? I, I think that there's he, he seems like the kind of guy that might have um Oh, well, you know what? I was just about to say he seems like the kind of guy that might actually get into team management because he's very data driven. Apparently he's a very smart kind of guy, but he also just seems like so retired from all aspects of Formula One, like not even just being a driver. Like I could also see him just literally becoming like an environmental activist and never cutting his hair again. So it's just really hard to say, you know, whether he has any interest in actually being around the sport anymore. I don't know, but. Yeah, I, I, it kind of seems like that. I mean, obviously it's probably great to drive a F1 car every weekend, but it does seem like you, you could hear it on the radio. You could see it in the interviews. It just, yeah, it seems like he's kind of tired. It's kind of how Raikkonen sounded at the end, right? Where it's just, pure well and he's I, kind of a different i don't know if you can fully read into that <laughs> i couldn't tell you how raikkonen sounded because the man never spoke <laughs> that's <laughs> true honest. the the degrees from joy to anger and frustration are, are pretty narrow but yeah i think you just saw it with both of them is like once you've once you've been had the best you know it, it's got to just be pure frustration most weekends after that so you weren't surprised necessarily in aggregate by the retiring, maybe the timing but were you surprised by the Alonzo move. Uh, massively. Yeah. I At first, yes. I think in retrospect, you can see how it makes sense on both parties. But I think that it was the speed again. Like At no point did I think, oh, they're going to have that spot filled in two days and it's going to be an existing driver, right? I, I thought they would have had somebody else slide or not certainly not a driver in the top four teams, right? And so the shakeup of Alpine is, is pretty significant, but I mean, what was your take on the overall like logic behind from Alonzo's side, from Alpine's side? I mean, who do you think wins or loses in this, in this trade? Well, I think there's no doubt that he caught Alpine off guard. Um, I read something today about like there, there was this massive scramble within the Alpine PR team. Cause when they found out like, they cobbled together their statement and like an hour later put it out. I don't think they had a clue. I think he completely blindsided them Yeah, internally. But if I had to logic it out, I was shocked this morning, but then I sat down and thought about it. And, and I think it makes sense to me mostly because of Oscar Piastri, because Alpine obviously wanted him to get a drive in 2023. And then I think we're pretty keen to put him in the actual OEM Alpine team in 2024. And so based on the fact that, it seems like Fernando has a multi-year deal from Aston Martin. I think what it ultimately came down to is he wanted a multi-year deal. Seems like he's a guy that like, yeah, sure, he wants to win championships, but also he's probably resided in his heart of hearts to knowing he's not going to be in a lead car again in his career. And so I think at this point, dude, he just wants to stay in the game. You know, like he just wants to be in the game. And I don't think he could get a multi-year deal from Alpine. And I don't think he had any interest in driving a lower formula for them. And so Aston was the move that made sense. But if any of the press releases are like him, you know, seeing the trajectory of Lawrence Stroll's investments and feeling like Aston's going to be a team he can compete in, that's just bullshit. He like they may improve, but like he just is trying to stay in the game is how I can see it. And they want to get 
They want to ring. Aston wants to ring every ounce of brand and institutional value out of Fernando's head while they try and restore that team. And are probably paying him bukus. Uh, yeah, I mean, the number I saw was like 25. Now, again, nobody knows if that's real or not. But yeah, I mean, at a certain point, Alonzo has to see the writing on the wall, knowing that time is limited, but not being satisfied with a one-year time frame. And, oh, if I can get a premium on my salary on top of that, like, sure, why not? Um, but I, I think, while I'm sure money comes into it to some to some extent, I do think what you hear and see from him is just very different than what you've seen from Vettel, right? Just the, the constitution that they've both had. And Alonzo is like still in the fight, still loves it, still loves some of the getting mixed up in like the, the, the talking between different drivers weekend and week out, like the end of last season, he was, you know, chattering a bunch. And so I think he genuinely just wants to do nothing. Dude, he's else, hungry, but yeah, he just, just wants to stay, driving an F1 car more than anything, because it's interesting a few weeks or even months ago, you saw this news came out of, Oh, well, Alonzo's like queued up to, to run in one of like the LMP classes, right. And, you know, for, for Alpine and help launch that. And now I'm looking back at that, wondering if that was something on the Alpine side, trying to like push that spin that. And he gets that article and he's thinking like, what the hell are you people talking about? I have every, intent to so i wonder if he saw that at the same time as us and was equally surprised and that kicks off his bid to start asking around and and seeing what other opportunities he might have because it sounds like that was never never an option um in his mind a little bit of the little bit of a brett Favre situation i mean you're a packers fan is this pretty similar right like you have potential prodigy waiting in the wings guys a Hall of Famer and is great, but you just can't make room for him in your roster multi-years out. He's at the on the back nine of his career. Like, at the end of the day, I think they'll both be able to look at it objectively and not really have any bad blood. Like, Other than maybe how, how Alonzo handled it. and Yeah, just completely blindsiding him. But I guess at the end of the day, if, if it means that Alpine can put Piastri in sooner, even if Piastri has a rocky or rookie year because he has to go straight to Alpine, They'll probably be better for it in the long run, unless he like just destroys his confidence so badly in the first year in the car. That he, but like, that's not, I, he's he's really good. I don't think that's likely. So um, yeah, I mean, I think the worst, and and you're right. It's it's quite a bit reminiscent of of that kind of kind of situation, right? Where the the old gun doesn't want to give it up. He still is ready to play. And I think differently, what you see with Alonso is at least he's thoroughly demonstrating that he still has it. Right. Whereas I think Favre probably faded off quite a bit more and you knew you weren't getting back to the promised land with him. But you still have the issue of the unproven commodity. No one knew what Aaron Rodgers had at the time. And, you know, fortunately, it worked out you know, quite well, I think. Yeah. Um, you don't know with the so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's Could've dating some person named like Blue Earth now or whatever. But, I'm, you know, I don't sponsor that. As long as the man keeps keeps with a good TD to interception ratio, that's that's all I care about. He can date whatever fairies or leprechauns he wants to. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what he's got going on, but uh, yeah, he can get all the all the constellations tattooed on him if he wants. But how, dude, how poetic was it that Alonzo pulled that shit literally the same weekend that Ocon just f's him twice in the race for no reason? 
at this it's almost out of like spite he's like all right screw you guys if you're gonna keep this clown on the payroll like i'm out <laughs> i wonder if he like if that was either the thing like he was just so ready to announce it by the end of that race or like what if that was the thing where he's like i was on the fence but after that race fuck this <laughs> i'm out <laughs> i would love to know if that were true we never will but man that makes me so happy to think that Ocon is the is literally the thing that he's the real the door. He's the real catalyst. Yeah. Because, oh, what a I, well, I mean, how much faster could all of this have been processed? I mean, Alonzo had to have known what Vettel was doing and have had conversations with Aston beforehand, right? Like this thing was not wrapped up in 48 hours of a race weekend. Yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, it's not like Seb didn't make up his mind. Like Aston gave Seb an offer and apparently he didn't make up his mind until like, right before that became public. So I'm sure Alonzo knew that there was like an offer pending, but I doubt Aston would have been able to have super progressed conversations with him because their first priority was re-signing Seb. And if they're out there having super evolved contract negotiations with Alonzo at the same time, then you're almost guaranteeing you're not going to get Seb. So it's like they'd have been risking too much, I think. So I I think it actually did unfold pretty quickly. So I say they went one hell of a nimble, uh, contracting organization we need to get we need to get those guys in and give us some notes look i mean there's not a lot that you can say that lawrence stroll is good at but he has seemed to be poaching engineering talent left right and center throwing contracts at these at these aero guys from mercedes and red bull and getting them over to their new factory in silverstone and then yeah i mean he negotiated the driver market particularly well and you know like he's involved in that directly so as much as we bash on lawrence for just like him generally torpedoing the entire success of that team. He seems to be able to navigate negotiation pretty well. So, you know, everybody's got their thing. So it sounds like the, uh, the Aston Martin HR department on your personal podium for the week. (laughs) (laughs) Quick three, but getting talent out, getting talent in. Tell you what, they're a lot better than uh, our employers. That's for sure. (laughs) Put an ink on the page. Well done. (laughs) I was going to say, we need uh, the, the Red Bull, strategists got all sorts of play on on social media i do think they need to get the the aston oh, hr hannah. head of hr get them some facetime to, i got a lot to say about hannah all right well her, let's know. let's get to hannah here in a in a moment before we fully move off of this i do think it creates so well first off obviously part of the decision for alpine is how long fernando alonso had in the sport they have arguably the best prospect waiting in the wings to take over who's on par with, you know, the types of performances of Russell Leclerc Verstappen, just warming a seat at this point. So seems like a huge waste, but how long could, I mean, how long do you see Alonso keeping this up, especially once he's subjected to the, to the stroll environment? Honestly, man, I kind of like, I smell a little bit of Tom Brady in the guy, not from like an overall like championship winning, like prowess standpoint, but all right, that's he, but no, so backhanded compliment. It was going so nicely. No, 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 no. But just from a longevity standpoint, like he seems, so first off, I don't think he has any kids. Actually, I I just looked it up. I know he has no kids. He's married, but like, he seems like very person, like, okay. Think about just from a personal fitness standpoint, put Sebastian Vettel and Alonzo side by side and Alonzo's already got like four or five years on him and he's in much better shape. Like the guy cycles like a fiend. He seems very committed to just like, he know he seems like he has a very good grasp of what it takes physically for him to remain relevant in the sport. And he's very committed to it. So I, I'm finding it hard to put a number on him, man. Like 
chances are if he comes into Aston and Stroll's still there, which he will be, I find it hard to believe he's not going to just dispatch Stroll immediately. You know, and because Ocon is clearly a better driver than Stroll, and without bad luck, Alonso would be gapping Ocon by a significant margin of the driver. So, look, I mean, if he comes in and he beats Stroll consistently for two years, is he just going to hang up and retire after that? Like, I don't know, man. The guy just seems like he. Maybe I'll put the over under at three more years in F1, which would make him like what forty five? Is that? Maybe he wants to be the oldest guy to ever race in a Grand Prix. Maybe I, I don't. I'm gonna look that. Actually, who is the oldest? That's the that's the benchmark he's going for. I, I mean, maybe. I mean, Brady's certainly proud of how he's done that in the NFL, and I mean, it's worth something. Longevity he, matters, man. What if he goes there and doesn't beat Stroll? Can we officially crown Stroll like the the championship I, killer? I will be the first man to line up and shake Lance Stroll's hand. But I'm gonna tell you what. That's about the worst odds. I can't give that lower odds like that. It's just not going to happen. I'm sorry. Oh man. Well, time will, apparently time will tell now. Um, and when do you expect in the, the Piastri news to come out? Is that your, your leading candidate for, for the Alpine seat or, or how do you see this playing out and, and rippling across the, the rest of the driver market? Oh, Hey, before we go there, never mind. This guy post-World War II raced an F1 car, uh, when he was 58. So I don't, I don't think that Alonso's getting that record. <laughs> was that like a real race or is this like a Lewis like Ciron, dude, it was a, it was a championship year. So. Wow. After right. the second world war derailed his moto racing career, Ciron made his return and was back with a vengeance winning two French grand prix. Yeah. His 58 was his oldest start. All right. Well, anyway. maybe in the modern era, that's, that's going to be tough to, Tough yeah. to, he might hang on to that record for a while. So, sorry, what was your what was your question? I was reading about this old British guy <laughs> from the fifties. Uh, <laughs> um, so what's your what's your projections now on on an announcement on Piastri? Oh, you think Alpine will be August. quick to to follow that what? up and and yeah, you think that's wait? the you think that's the move or or do you think there's going to be some other ripple effects throughout the sport? No, because I doubt that they – I think what they were trying to do behind the scenes was get him basically like a loaned seat at Williams, essentially, for 2023. But um, I doubt that they've done anything on that front that's irreversible. And so I'm, I am I bet you at some point in August they'll announce him in the car because at this point it's kind of like, why wait, you know? Um, if anything, Alonso kind of did him a little bit of a favor to simplify the transaction. Um but he might just be a little green in the seat next year and suffer slightly from it. So do you think this is just more cut and dried than most people? Because of course everyone is entertaining the most exotic of ideas. I know it's from tempting. Ricardo going somewhere no, to maybe that pulls no. up Mick somewhere. He actually goes to wherever you think it's, or it's just more cut and dries as Piastri gets a seat at Alpine that, that makes DeVries the one and only leader for, for Williams and then we're pulling in some of the other F2 guys and, and indie guys as part of like the next crop of, uh, you know, driver program. I think that's it. Uh, I, I think Ricardo has my, my new theory on Ricardo is I think he's got McLaren's balls and a vice based on how his contract's written. And so the only person that's going to take Daniel Ricardo out for 2023 is Daniel Ricardo. And if he takes himself out, he's not going to another team, man. He's just going to do something else. He's not getting a better um, deal than what he's got right now, presumably. Yeah, because he's getting paid. I mean, he's probably making 20 plus a year. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I 
I don't think that uh, anything is changing at McLaren for 2023. So they're locked for those full for the next two years afterwards. Yeah, but I think it's purely because of the contract they wrote with him. They must have just given away the farm in terms of, you know, clauses to get out of it. But given what they believed about Ricardo at the time, I guess I can't really blame them. Um, is what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see. Well, you might be right, but um, just as we've seen in the last couple of days, crazier things have happened. So time Indeed. will tell. All right. Well, now with the uh, the big news out of the weekend, should we get to the get to the race? Let's do it, man. We got a lot to get to here. Yeah, I mean, so now that we've covered that, it, it, it's good because that was the the most surprising part of the weekend. Unsurprisingly, Ferrari's blunders now an old hat. Um, look. I, I was after practice with Ferrari topping the timesheets basically throughout both dry and wet conditions. Well, all but for one uh, very talented driver in the wet, which we'll cover more momentarily. Oh, dear God. Uh, but from practice and qualifying second and third, I, you know, I was coming to this episode fully ready to to swallow my pride and, it, you know, admit that maybe we were a little tough and overly condescending on Ferrari and thank God that they had a great weekend while Red Bull stumbled in qualifying 10th and 11th. It means great things for the championship narrows the fight, man, the second half of the season is going to be great, but alas, we're stopping qualifying 10th makes it all the way up the field to get first Hamilton and Russell have a second and third place second in a row, double podium. Uh, while Ferrari, despite qualifying second and third, finish an embarrassing fourth and sixth place <laughs> with McLaren continuing their strong so battle bad. with Alpine, even on points with Norris in seventh and the Alpine guys in eighth and ninth, while uh, Norris's friend Ricardo bringing up the rear in 15th place and rounding out the points. Mr. Retirement himself, Vettel, in 10th place, coming from 18th. So quite the move up the field this weekend um, and, and largely dependent on strategy, which was, which was I think, especially great to see. It wasn't driven by mechanical failures or crashes. This was a genuine, how does the car perform? How does the team perform? And uh, it, it really, didn't, it really dis- didn't disappoint. But what was your overall impressions of the weekend? So, you know that infamous gif, that NFL coach, the Cardinals, Dennis Green, who's screaming at the press conference, the Bears are who we thought they were? I was watching that Monday night game from Arizona when that happened, yeah. Yeah, so so my, this is my, they are who we thought they were weekend. Okay. Uh, Ferrari continues to fuck themselves. Mercedes is surging, which, if you recall, at the beginning of the year, we said to our, I think we both agreed that the best guess was that they were going to be on front car pace at the summer break, which look where they are. Uh, their return of Mr. Saturday. He's George back. Russell, who's shedding his Mr. Consistency uh, um, clothes in favor of something greater. Must say, Mr. Saturday, regardless of what it means for Sunday's implications, Mr. Saturday is a far cooler nickname than Mr. Consistency. Let's just be clear about that. It borderlines on like, you know, cool name for F1 driver slash could also be a porn star. I, 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 uh, I quite. Enjoy. All right. Uh, Max still a silent assassin, just completely like stone cold killer consistency. 
Ocon, still a bitch in every way, shape, and form. <laughs> and then Ricardo, like we've already said it, honestly, I don't think I need to. We are who they thought they were, Gerald. That was my recap of the weekend. Well, and and if I recall correctly, Hungary was a, a shitty track as you thought it at the start of the weekend. Very boring, Again, repetitive still a corners. Shitty track. But how about the uh, notably hard to pass, but what was your take on the, the quality of the racing? I, I, it seems to be that, you know, Last season was a the sort of the inflection point in the season where Botas goes bowling and Mercedes and Hamilton take leads in the championship. This weekend, an incredibly dynamic, strategy dependent weekend. What? Um, how can Hungary keep pulling out these phenomenal performances despite being such a, a boring track? I think that the Hungary saving grace is when the uh, it's all condition related. Right, and we did we did think we were going to get a rain. We thought we were going to get rain qualifying and rain race. We got neither. Yep. A um, little bit of water on the track in the race, but yeah, but not, just a no small amount. Yeah, yeah, not nothing that really affected anybody's strategy particularly. But the the temperature is what really did it. And so, to your point, you got entertainment out of the race on the basis of some people were off position from qualifying, so they had to come through the field. Right, notably Red Bull. Um, and then, yeah, you just had a bunch of just strategy chess matches where, you know, Ferrari just continued to fumble the pieces. And so it was compelling. Right. But also, I think it's really just a byproduct of the fact now that we have six cars that legitimately could win a race every week, which I mean, I'll be honest, I don't care where you race like that's going to be entertaining. So I don't I'm happy. That, don't get me wrong. I'm not like really wanting to just super shit on Hungary. I hear Budapest is really lovely, but I don't think that the entertainment was really a byproduct of the track at all. And I still stand by, I don't think it's a very compelling circuit, even with better regs and the conditions leading it to be more entertaining than we thought. I just, there's nothing about that track that's particularly interesting to me. So, yeah, I think your point on the qualifying and getting a mixed qualifying, having a team make some kind of mistakes at that point, right? I mean, that's what made Austria so exciting with, with Mercedes struggling. So, yeah, fully agree. And it just seems like the the teams genuinely do not have the tires figured out this season, um, whether it be in race and optimal strategy to, as we'll talk about with Red Bull, Perez in particular just does not seem to be able to optimize the tire window for qualifying ever, not only this race, but in several others. And so I just think the new the new size whatever the new design that Pirelli has done, I don't think they've gotten fully comfortable with some of the physics around it, which is fair to say, given they had a last era of tires that I would imagine were relatively consistent for a handful of years. And so you really got to read them. I think in, in temperature fluctuations, especially as we're coming off of summer now, um, you might see more and, and more of that as we get later into the year. So it'll be interesting, but yeah, nothing short. Hungary brings the interesting weather. So props to them for uh, unpredictable, showers. All right. So with that, let's turn to the teams themselves. We have Red Bull surprising to be sitting at the top here at the end of the weekend, uh, qualifying 10th, 11th place purely were, were teeing up for a damage limitation race. Uh, but they walk away with a, a first and fifth place finish, uh, now leading constructors championship by 97 points going into the summer break. Verstappen leads Leclerc by 80 points and Perez in third, just five points off Leclerc. So hard to have expected that at the start of the season and definitely not where Ferrari 
wants to be, but for Red Bull's got to be going into the summer break pretty comfortable. For Verstappen, this was his win from the lowest position on the starting grid, winning from 10th. He tied Sir Jackie Stewart for the eighth most wins of all time. And now Verstappen and Hamilton tie Verstappen and Rosberg for most one-two finishes of any driver pairing, which if it means anything, I have to say that is a far more favorable one-two pairing for the sport than Hamilton-Rosberg. Dude, he finished... He, he he went from 10th to 1st with no safety cars. Yeah. Like, like, with no safety cars on a track that's traditionally harder to overtake. That is absurd. And he won by 10. He was 10 seconds clear. Yeah. That's absurd. Well, yeah, exactly. I think you see Mercedes has to feel good about the weekend overall. And you think, oh, wow, they're only 10 seconds off because they've finished way further off in previous races and even to being lapped and now 10 seconds and, and Hamilton started further back in the field and Russell was 19 off. So, you know, 15 to 19 seconds off. So uh, yes, while the gap is probably still larger than that reflects Hamilton or uh, Mercedes has definitely closed it up. Oh, for sure. I, I, I think that they're approaching, you know, a pit window to Red Bull on an even day where both cars start where they should on the grid. Um, but dude, like, I mean, what do you, what can you say about Max, man? I mean, I even, I was honestly, the most impressive part of the race might've been his opening lap. And I mean, I, he didn't get a great start, but he very clearly, and it was interesting because I heard that, um, I heard in all the post-race debrief that Red Bull's original strategy was to start on the hard. Yeah. And then when they saw the temperatures the way that they were, and then Max and Checo drove their cars to the grid spot, they were like, yeah, we got no grip. Like, there's no chance we're starting on the hard. Yeah. And so they switched because, you know, they're not, you know, morons like uh, like some some of the red teams further down the paddock. Uh, and, and so they put the soft tire on. And if anything, what Max should be thinking in his head is, okay, originally we were going to go long. Now they're putting the soft on, which means that I have to get through the field quicker. Yeah. on this stint before I pit, right? More versus if you had the hard on, you could just kind of hang back, drive more conservatively and slow play it. Now you got the softs, so you got to get through the field. But dude, he saw some like shit starting to get hairy going into turn one and Magnuson kind of came in on him on the inside. He just like very much self-preserved, kept it patient, waited for the field to string out in a single file and just went about his business like an absolute assassin. Had some clutch issues that he managed with the team. I mean, it was... a it was so impressive, man. Like, that's just not a race he should win. I, I like, I'm definitely ready to call the drivers and the constructors championships. I think after watching that, because it's like, that's the worst, apart from a DNF, that is literally the worst setup to a weekend Red Bull could have had. And they come away with the first and the fifth because they've got a total team and they can perform and have the strategy side of the garage make up for the engineering side when they fall and the drivers can pull out crazy performances when the other two, like, they're just kind of constantly lifting each other up from different angles of the team. And so when you've got that going, man, it's hard to say that a team like that's not going to, I don't know who's going to catch him. I really don't. Well, and it's kind of like a three-legged stool, right? You have the yeah. the driver performance, the strategy, and the the mechanical quality and, and durability, right? And you see Mercedes, they've obviously had the driver performance and the strategy but they hadn't had the car underneath them. Ferrari has broken all three legs of those stool uh, <laughs> on multiple occasions. Hit every stair on the way down. Yes. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a stool you're about to use as kindling into the fire. Just 
Um, whereas Red Bull has, you know, minus the, the reliability issues on the front end of the season, they sort of have a, a pretty stable condition in all three legs of the stools. You know, at this point, Perez is genuinely and, and driver performance is the sort of the weakest spot out of all of them. But other than that, it's hard to see where where enough legs of those stool break through the rest of the season to for them to lose the position that they have now. I mean, both Perez actually had an even better start at one point on opening lap. He was like three positions ahead of max. I think he got all the way up into like seventh place um, before then losing a couple positions and ultimately max sliding by as well. But absolutely great call out on trying to go three wide into turn one and max saw the writing on the wall and just bailed out a good, you know, 10, 15 meters early and let those guys fly by. So yeah, he's clearly taking a much more like patient and measured approach, um, even when he's starting in the midfield. Um, can I give some shine to Hannah Schmitz now? Or sh- yeah, I know you've been dying to, give it, like, Dude, all right. Principal Red Bull race strategist. Uh, Max gave her some love in the post-race. Um, every other race, I think she switches off with, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Jonathan Wheatley, maybe, mm. uh, who's their chief strategist, but... Uh, she switches off with him on a pit wall. And so she was on the pit wall today. And I, so this this woman is a 10-year veteran of Red Bull Racing. She's got a master's in mechanical engineering from Cambridge. And you think about... So I actually listened to an interview that she gave uh, like a couple months ago in prep for this. And imagine like being on the pit wall as a race strategist, basically like being the leader in the control room of like an Apollo like lunar mission. Cause you yeah. know how like Red Bull and Mercedes have these full like stadium style rooms of people working back at the factory who are all processing data live. And then your job is basically like the lead strategist on the pit wall is to coordinate all of those comms and then tactfully insert them into whatever's happening in the race. So that like she Horner and uh, Jonathan Wheatley can basically like make calls as the race is going. Uh, absolute assassin, man. To have a team culture where you can react to the conditions, go on a different tire strategy. They're always the aggressor with pit stop strategy, Red Bull is. They go for broke. They pit early. They force other teams' hands. These guys know Ferrari's weaknesses, and they freaking exploited them so perfectly on Sunday. And I just want to give some shine to her. She is absolutely a stone-cold killer, along with the rest of the Red Bull strategist group. I know they are not perfect, but those guys put on an absolute masterclass. And honestly, so did Mercedes in terms of just overall race management and strategy, the tire strategy, how they time the pit windows. Those guys are are absolutely toying with Ferrari, like absolutely toying with them. And I don't know if it's because they're, they've got better decision-making culture, they've got access to better data, they've got better predictive models, they're better communicators. It's probably a combination of all four. They are dialed, and it is like it is a permanent advantage, or at least for the foreseeable future, until you know they fire Bonato and actually like build a real team. So, well, which is odd because it seems like one of the areas that you would be able to develop the easiest. No, like when you compare getting a best in class driver or building the car to win, I don't know. Those seem like bigger, longer term propositions than making good decisions in a race. I don't know if I agree. Cause I think that strategy 
is it's as much of a product of the system that you build your decisions on top of as the decisions themselves, right? Because like you think about all the inputs that are going into that. I mean, every team has a proprietary model. They have proprietary models for forecasting race performance. And I, I legitimately think that like Red Bull and Mercedes are fundamentally better at making race strategy calls because they built better models. They fed them better data over time. And um, they've just trained themselves around them better. And so they don't have to... I think the thing with Ferrari, man, is they get inside their own heads and they try and apply judgment, the judgment of their personnel across too many variables inside of a race, and they overthink it. And they screw themselves. And it just seems like Red Bull or Mercedes are just a... They're just a factory for decision-making into a race. Yeah, that's where I would go. I, I think it's less about the underlying technology or the models. I think it goes back to what you said last time, which is more of just the the organizational psychology yeah. and approach to decision making. And whether it is because they are waffling too much, whether it is because they're too um, anchored to whatever decisions that they made at the start of the race, I'm not sure. But it does not seem like they have very nimble and agile decision-making and are able to pivot their strategy as conditions change. Um, and so to your point, yes, that's an institutional muscle that has to be built and decided to be built. And I think, I just don't think Ferrari has do, decided to build that as part of their, of their culture, as, as I think you said last time, which is it is more of like the quintessential top down, protect the brand at all costs. Last week's race was all about damage limitation for signs and we can't have two DNFs in a weekend because how stupid will we look then? Um, and this week it just seemed like they were, while it made sense for Russell to be reacting to to Verstappen's pitting, while but Hamilton went off and ran his own race. Ferrari was caught in this awkward position of sort of reacting to one driver, but not the other, but then also just pitting too early. So, well, let's get into, let's get into that in more detail. Because Are we going to officially transition to Ferrari? You got, you got more to say on, on race strategy here? Well, on, no, no, no. I wanted to, before we move off of uh, Red Bull, I just wanted to quick, your quick thoughts on good weekend or bad weekend for Perez somewhere in the middle. I mean, he went from 11th to fifth, so it's kind of hard to, to shit on that, but obviously, yeah. Helmut Marco has. No, I'm glad you paused this because I do think there's more to cover on 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 Red Bull. So one on Parrot. For first off, let's go back to Verstappen. Um, the 360 spin once again. Just it's those moments where you look at like, compare him versus like a Sonoda, right? Who spun also, and you're just like, it is a different world where he starts a spin, he steps on the gas to swing it or the west rest of the way around, loses a couple of seconds on track and is poised to pass, only loses one spot, poised to pass Leclerc three or four laps later. I mean, that's the that's the stuff where you you see the great drivers from the from the good ones. And then speaking of greatness, is GP the best like race engineer? I like on the him. grid. I mean, Bono's Bono's pretty exceptional. It's hard yes. to but GP's up there. Well, I think what they both have is this dynamic of being able to, they're just a a coach on the wall, right? And being able to manage the psyche of their driver, like where my favorite moment was Verstappen in qualifying, sort of losing it over the engine issue and, and pissed kind of rightfully so why he's not getting more information and being told what's going on. And GP just comes like with just the most measured response back to him of, you know, we'd prefer not to talk about that on the radio as I'm sure you can understand it was a mechanical <laughs> issue like it didn't work out you know and it just and Max is silent the rest of the time 
back into the grid. And it was just the one thing he needed to hear to like kind of settle the situation. So you got to respect that. And then after the lap one incident, they're going around and they're doing, um, you know, their yellow flag and GP perfectly articulates where the debris was on the track for Max to effectively avoid it. He was like, take the entry, like your normal entry line, but on the, you know, there's debris sitting just past the apex on the inside. So like veer out then like he, he perfectly articulated how Max needed to navigate that corner. So, um, kind of to the point is what we see with Ferrari where they're always like have their head in their hands or they're, they, they need to call him back in a second. Like GP's always there with the information proactively. Um, so I guess maybe they should be taking some notes first and foremost from there. Um, but then to Perez, um, yeah, look, I think, I think Perez is it's, it's getting back down to qualifying issues. And I think for whatever reason, how he brings the tire temperature in, um, or how comfortable he is with the lack of grip in cold conditions. It just seems like he, he never has the traction needed to put in a good lap. And I, I don't know why they don't consider doing like two lap, a double warm up lap. Um, they've done those in past seasons and it seemed to help. It can also create some get gaps on the track. So I don't know if that's something that they should be doing with him, but yeah, race pace was fine. I think he managed it well, moved up to where I would have expected him to, but I think it's more of an issue in qualifying, particularly when the tires are not in the right window. I agree. I agree. I don't know. Like, why didn't they leave him out in Q2 though? I get the warm up thing. I mean, that's, but they just pulled him off the track seemingly for no reason. Like I, on both sure stints, he, right. They had, he had his one lap and then went yeah. into the pit and like, then that was it. Yeah. And you think with a cold track, like track evolution would be a thing and it was, and yeah, that, that was a bit perplexing. I never, I never heard an explanation on that. Well, and that's where I, I go back to, it does seem like they're, they're anchored in the, these like very traditional, like best practices, right? You got your one lap, then you come in. I don't know that they fully adapted to these tires and, and ways to use them differently. Because I, if I recall correctly, there was earlier races this season where teams had done that when there was similar cooler conditions and it, it just didn't seem like something that came to mind this weekend. So bit of a mystery for, uh, for Perez, but I will say he's been a great teammate for max. I mean, there was a point on the track where max is coming up behind him and the man got out of the way so fast. I mean, you would have hardly even known he had passed his teammates. So he, he's doing exactly what they need him to do. And I, I think it's a, it's not a great weekend. It's not a bad weekend. He did what he needed to do, which is all they need him to do. So kept him, kept it on the track. All right. The moment the, we've all been part. waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> the oh, we got through man. all the serious stuff. Now let's move to Ferrari. You want to, you want to kick this off? Can I open us up with a quick Please word? Please do. Please. So Gerald, over the weekend, we lost a sporting legend, Bill Russell passed away. Uh, he was arguably the greatest champion and teammates ever live in any sport. Hmm. Uh, I think he won double digit championships in the NBA, all for the same team. Loyal, apparently a very just personally admirable person of super high character. He was once quoted as saying, to me, the most important part of winning is joy. You can win without joy, but winning that's joyless is like eating in a four-star restaurant when you're not hungry. Joy 
is a current of energy in your body like chlorophyll or sunlight that fills you up and makes you naturally do your best. And so on the weekend of his passing, I'd like to congratulate Ferrari for honoring him in only a way that they could by doing zero winning and experiencing zero joy. Congratulations, Ferrari. I think that might be the worst homage to Bill Russell ever. The least the least <laughs> thing he would want to be equated with right now in this moment is the Ferrari racing team. I'm also formally accepting Matt Gallagher of WTF1's uh, resignation as a Ferrari fan. Uh, I would like it on my desk, <laughs> my close of business tomorrow. <laughs> it's fair Ugh. to ask. Ugh. Uh, uh, I mean, what a train wreck, dude. Yeah, I mean, just, just as the recap, I mean, so... To put things into context, Ferrari was minus five on positions gain lost this race. Minus five. Mercedes was plus three. Red Bull plus 15. Dude, um, did you hear Bonato in the post race basically trying to excuse the performance by saying, I don't think we had the pace anyway? Yeah. <laughs> like, you were you were minus five against qualifying. Like, of course you had the pace. Well, and look, there are plenty of circumstances where somebody can have the qualifying pace and not have the race pace. Arguably, Russell was in that camp. Um, the other Russell was in that camp. Yeah, but he was this on the weekend. podium. Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't first. But yeah. I at no point did I see looking back at some of the sector times late in tire stints. Did I see Leclerc significantly struggling relative to drivers, even on newer tires? And so, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm not what? sure where Bonato's explanation is coming from on that. Um, so question for you is, well, well, just to close out here, Ferrari's now 30 points ahead of Mercedes, and that is it. And as I said before, nearly 100 points off of, of Red Bull. So clearly a competition for second best at this point. Um, and so Bonato places it on the, the failure on car performance. Uh, we talked about the three legged stool where, where do you place blame uh, this weekend and this weekend only squarely on Bonato, man. Uh, at the end of the day, the buck stops with you and their inability to actually even admit that there's an issue uh, hmm. is Probably the most damning thing of it all. I, dude, I am... I think I said I was 100% certain last week. I am 110% certain now that Ferrari is going to blow... Uh, or, sorry, Mercedes is going to blow Ferrari's doors off in the constructors, and Toto is going to nut-tap Bonato on the way by with that cheesy-ass grin of his. It is an absolute foregone conclusion. I agree they're both racing for a second, but there 100% is... 100% certainty. Uh, there is nothing in that Ferrari team that tells me that they are going to hold on to that second place. And and you said it last week. If they – I don't even think it matters at this point, but if – I think the book's already closed on Bonato personally. But if they if they can't even win second after the start they had to the year, there is no chance that leadership team comes back. But also, who are they going to replace him with? Like, they've got this weird, super vertically integrated, insulated culture of, like, leader development. And basically, every time a team principal expires, he goes to work for the FIA or like in some leadership role in F1. But their development pipeline for talent is all 
Italian and up through the ranks of the team. And so the people that they're going to get to replace them are going to be a part of the same institution that is the problem. So, like, what do you do? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I do not feel good about this team. I feel like for them to win a constructors, they're going to have to develop a car that is at least a second a lap faster than the next, the next closest car. Because I, I think that the sum total of the rest of their incompetence is going to overcome that type of relative car performance. I, I don't know. It's oh. well, and he's been on, and to your, he's been on the team forever. And and I have not heard any whispers of of who would be next in the wings, but at this point, I don't see how how he sticks around. Particularly, you know, the 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 blaming the car performance and nothing else is is one thing. What was your take on the the highly publicized trip to the trip to the <laughs> RV that Bonato Dude. took with about eleven laps remaining, as as all hope was starting to fade away? It's typical Sp- Sky Spurt Sports clickbait commentary, but I'll be honest. If 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 the first thing people say when you're seen walking off the pit wall is that they're speculating that you're running from your own shame and dignity, that's on you. And like <laughs> literally, all you have to do is go take a piss. Like, sorry, that's on you. <laughs> like, I don't have any sympathy for him. Yeah, there are I'm circumstances sure around. There are circumstances around that one event that have set the stage to make that commentary even viable at all. So yeah. So before, like just to talk through what this weekend looked like for them, because there was a lot that happened, but just to boil it down in short, they both started on mediums, right? And signs pitted first to cover off Russell's pit stop. One, he had a slow pit stop. So blames blame there that put him out right behind Ocon. Um, And then I guess the question there is, did they just pit signs to free up Leclerc? Like, did signs need to pit on lap 17 old mediums? It's hard to sit there after how much they screwed up everything else that followed in the race. I'm not sure they were even smart enough to try and tactically get, like, swap cars through pitting strategy like that. I truly think that they were just in the moment reacting to Russell, which to me... I don't know what gives them the confidence to think that they even have like the ability to 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 cover drivers. Like I think if you looked at the Delta times on Russell's outlap, they they were within a second, right, of like based on a normal pit stop timing of getting out in front or behind him. And at that point, it's just like, well, these medium tires are not dropping off. I don't know why I wouldn't just say fuck track position right now. We got a long race ahead of us. I'm going to make sure my guy's on the better tire at the end of the race. And let him win on the track. Like, why are they so paranoidly focused on keeping track position? It's such a short-sighted reaction to pit signs that early. You just gave up the only advantage you had from starting on the medium tire. You just threw it out the window. And you basically turned that medium tire into a harder soft tire from a race strategy standpoint. made no sense to me. Yeah, they definitely prioritized track position. And it's like they forgot that they started the race on a different strategy and the entire intent of their strategy was to make it up on the final stint on a pair of softs and like have that come from behind. So it's, it's a bit, and, and the nice thing with that is then either you're waiting for safety cars or you have bigger gaps in between the midfield cars as that opens up. So you have more clean air to run faster. It's just like all of that went out the window when they saw the the statistics that Russell might overtake them on the track and like, 
that was unconscionable. Yeah, and then so they're 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 overreactive to that, but then in the face of blatant data from Haas and Alpine that the hard tire is not coming in as a race tire, they still put Leclerc on the hard. And and just magically thought that like their formula of downforce was going to be good enough for him to actually make that a real race tire. When they had even data before Alpine, Magnuson was the first one to go on hard tires on like lap five. I think I when know. he got black flag to come in with the damage, he he was on hards and, you know, almost two seconds slower a lap at that time. And so, I mean, they had the data well before the second pit stop in which they brought Leclerc in. So they pitted him on the 20th lap onto mediums. And at that point, even late into that gap, he was still maintaining position relative to Russell, who was on new mediums. And so that's where I'm like, why are you even bringing him in? If you're only giving up a couple of tenths on 20 lap old tires. Um, And look, it's so hard for you'd wish Leclerc would say, no, I want to stay out longer. But that's one thing on like the last stint and the last set of tires on whether you want to come in or not on a two-stop strategy or what turned out to be a three-stop strategy for him. Um, it's hard to to make that claim. You have to trust the team to have more information on where everybody's at and how tires are performing. Dude, p- part of me, I know this isn't true, but part of me is tempted to believe that Ferrari forgot that they had to run two different compounds in the race. And then they were like, oh shit, let's put them on the hards. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh, we can't run them on mediums the whole race. Like, I guess we got to throw these hards on. Like, but what was I your just... strategy when you started other than medium, medium, soft? Like they, Hamilton did that strategy perfectly. Perfectly. Got sec- I, that's what I'm got saying. got second I, place. There's absolutely no reason why they couldn't go medium, medium, soft. Like no reason at all. All they had to do was stretch a little longer. And Leclerc, to your point, had no evidence that he wasn't going to be able to do that. And he was in clean air. It, it 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 truly boggles the mind. It really does. I mean, the most damning thing of I think the whole weekend for Ferrari was Hamilton's reaction in the cool. <laughs> yes. I love the cool down room, dude. Hamilton, oh, Hamilton's reaction, learning that they had put Leclerc on the hard. He was like, "Sheesh!" <laughs> like what? Like he didn't know. I guess during the race because he never passed him on track, and it was just like, dude. When you can tell a driver that, and in a second in the cooldown room, he knows you fucked up. Like, dude, come on. Like, ugh. well, even better than better than Hamilton's reaction was both Verstappen and Russell like turning over to Hamilton to like smile and laugh and say like, <laughs> yeah, right, at the same moment. And then Russell has his like Kanye West moment where he's like obviously too happy, and then puts on his like serious face again. So the cooldown room <laughs> delivered for sure. The only thing I think the most frustrated I was in the whole race was the fact that they're watching the cooldown room, they're mic'd into the cooldown room, and then the broadcasters are still talking while saying like, wow, we're going to listen into what they're saying in the cooldown room. And it's like, yeah, if you'd stop talking, we could. Like, that needs to be just like team radio where you cease to talk as soon as you get mic'd into the, the cooldown room. They also seemingly cut mid-conversation out of the cooldown room, and they do it consistently, which tells me that they've only got a fixed amount of time they're willing to stay on the drivers, but like, I don't know what they got to do from a broadcast standpoint to just let that dialogue play out naturally for as long as those guys are shooting the shit. But like, yes. as a fan, that is the stuff I I absolutely live for. Yeah, they they're under they're making not enough use of the cooldown room still. That's an untapped untapped potential. So 
And then even further, like, so let's just round this out with Ferrari because one, they put Leclerc onto hards, which was clearly a bad strategy from all available data, making him a sitting duck for, for Verstappen and others. Um, and ultimately then they have signs pit again, um, to go to his softs. And then, you know, he had a slow pit stop again, which basically kept them from being able to, to halt Hamilton's undercut. And so while the strategy was poor this weekend, Oh, and then finally they have Leclerc pit for a third time. He's one of like three or four drivers on the grid to do a three stop strategy. The only one out of the bottom 15 to do it. So when you have a strategy akin to a bottom five team, um, you know, you've done something very, very wrong. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, they didn't have a chance after that first, that first stint at all. Yeah. I mean, they certainly don't have Hannah Schmitz on their strategy team. That's for sure. Watch out. Aston Martin's, uh, HR department's coming. They'll be calling. Hey man, I hope if she gets paid, I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> all right. Anything else to cover off on the, the horror show that was, that was Ferrari this weekend? I think it's about time we start asking the question, like, at what point does Charles Leclerc say enough is enough and start opening up conversations to other teams? I know it's not this year, but, like, how long... I'm not saying the guy's faultless, because he clearly has had a couple missteps this year, but, like, I mean, how long does a guy like that stay with a team that's just totally incompetent of actually making calls outside of him in the car to help him win a race i i mean he he can't stay there for his entire career i I, not not under these conditions i mean that would ruin him he he's got to be so beat up right now mentally i can't even imagine like it's so depressing how many times in the last nine races has he been on the podium uh jesus uh Gerald, I don't know. When was he on the podium last? Was it uh That's what they call in the business dead air. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I genuinely don't know the last time he was on the podium. Uh Austria. Oh yeah. And he got first, and that was the only time in the last nine races. <laughs> or sorry, eight races. Eight races. For the fastest driver and arguably at least tied for the fastest car. That's just inexcusable. Yeah. It, and, and so to your point, it is interesting how he thinks about it as, as much as you can discern from his highly scripted press conferences, you know, in the last one, when he made the mistakes, he did the math and said, I made a mistake here. I made a mistake here. If I lose the championship by whatever, 32 points, I know why it was. Well, he's currently lagging by 80 points. So there's a delta of 50 points there that he is not attributing to himself. So now some of that is certainly mechanical, so be it. But there's probably just as many points on the table from strategy, decision-making failures as well. And so, and he, he was a bit more candid this weekend, right? Where post-race he's saying, I'm not sure what they, what they were thinking. I'm not sure what strategy they had. And so he's very clearly creating some space there between the rest of the organization. And, and I'm not sure exactly what, how can you not, I don't know exactly when his next contract is up. I thought it was a couple of years out, but 
at that point, it'll be interesting to see where, where is Red Bull with Perez? Where is Mercedes with, with Hamilton? Everything's think, on the table, dude. I think everything he, he's a great candidate for both of those roles. And, and I think both of those drivers do have a limited short life until something better comes around Hamilton for retirement. And then Perez for a, you know, another faster driver. If, if he doesn't quite have the pace. So I, I give him until the end of this next contract. And unless Ferrari has won a championship with him, he goes somewhere else. I, I, why, why would you stay? How deep does that man's loyalty for, for country and, and pride go? It's been impressive to date, but I, I assume there has to be a limit. Especially with Lando off the market, presumably, having signed his 30-year deal with McLaren. Uh, you know, Leclerc will be probably in short order the most coveted free agent on the driver market. And uh, yeah, I, I, if Ferrari doesn't turn a firm 180, I fully agree. I don't think there's any hope of them retaining him at all. So, yep. Well, and then it's the question of, well, what does signs do? Right. Does sign, he had his dream deal knowing yeah. that Leclerc is probably a bit of a hotter commodity still. Does he have to bail sooner and try to fill whatever, whatever driver spot? So that'll be an interesting one to see play out. But I, yeah, it's tough to see where somebody brings home a W with those guys. All right, should we turn? Uh, should we turn to Mercedes now? I think they're well deserving of it. Yep. Uh, Russell, first ever pole position. Mister Saturday is back. Uh, unfortunately, lost on track position, m- mainly just a Red Bull strategy. Um, so it, it's hard to fault him there. Hannah was the was the Russell killer uh this weekend and with Hamilton starting on medium effectively utilized a different strategy uh and and closing on softs gaining some final positions at the the tail end of the race on signs and Russell um and then as we said before both drivers finishing about 14 to 19 seconds off of Verstappen at the end of the race uh and really Hamilton was only starting back there because of some DRS issues and qualifying um, and he believes he would have been in position to win had it not been for that. They may have had a front row lockout in qualifying had he not had his DRS issue, which is like, holy hell, man. Like they're back. They're back for sure. And then some. Yep. What, uh, what was your take on, on the overall weekend, the team, their performance? Uh, well, first I'd like to say that I think Toto Wolf is one of the worst fist pumpers of all time. Uh, incredibly in awkward. Wh- he goes for way? like he goes for like the two the the two arm like mm. at the same time, but he doesn't move the rest of his body, so he's just like <gasps> like it's just weird. Uh, <laughs> so he's got to work on that. But he was you know jubilant uh, for good reason. Um, I you know the George Russell uh, last lap in qualifying. I'll have to admit I didn't see it coming at all. It was one of those like stand up off your couch type moments because I was a hundred percent sure that Carlos Sainz had pole locked up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, dude, I think this is kind of one of those classic, they are who we thought they were things. They're surging, they're figuring out that car, they're making it more predictable. They're unlocking more of the natural pace, which clearly it has some. Um, and look, they have the two best drivers on the grid. When you average them together, they have the best pairing. Uh, so yeah, they're not going to catch Red Bull, uh, but they may be in the kind of shape to fight Red Bull in 2023 for sure. And I don't think Ferrari stands a chance, to be honest with you. Not a single chance. Uh, and there is no team. Conti- I mean, ha- name a single, other than the DRS flat, 
Name a single reliability issue that Mercedes has had this year. Nothing substantive that seems to have impacted a race. Yeah. I mean, porpoising generally, right? Like having a bad era philosophy, but they, they have not had a single reliability issue. So uh, there's also a case to be made that last 10 races of the year and that last nine races of the year, there's going to be a lot of guys taking great penalties and none of them are going to be Hamilton or Russell. So I, I just, these guys are on a, they've got a head of steam, man. Big time. Is it safe to say they have more momentum than any other team going into the summer break? For sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I just, it's, Red Bull's built up too much of a lead and Max is too good. But, um, yeah, these guys, I think, have a chance. Here's an interesting question. If we take the last nine races as one season by itself, will Mercedes win the last nine races in the Constructors? I mean, if you take the last couple of races, yeah, you'd, I would assume yes. I, I think it's very a very I real agree. possibility, which is is a big change from start of season. So I, that's they can't ask to be anywhere better than that. I agree. I think that I think that Mercedes will be the best constructor over the last nine races. I'll, I I I I, I feel all in. I feel comfortable making that prediction. Well, the other thing is, you know, the technical directive that's coming in Spa related to the floor design, right? The flexibility of the floor, the plank, the whole thing about I don't know, combat porpoising bullshit. It, it supposedly, well, I don't know if this is substantiated or not, but supposedly Red Bull has already been running the modified floor that will be compliant in Spa when the new directive comes down. Supposedly they've been running it on Perez's car. And uh, so if that whole thing plays out the way people think it will, which is that it's a technical directive that will actually benefit Mercedes, I mean, geez, man, like they got a bunch of tailwinds. So, yep. Yeah. Cause that could be the explanation for Perez's lack of pace as of late. So, and if yep. that's the case and that gets adapted onto Max's car, I mean, that's going to certainly narrow, you never know, narrow the field, field even further. Um, but I, I think it is, we are at the point where people making the statement that as though it's some sort of bold claim and that they're a great prognosticator because they are predicting that Mercedes might win a race this year. I fail to see where that is some great deep insight at not only two teams are going to win in any given season. Mercedes is consistently on the podium at this point. It's almost a foregone conclusion that they should have a win this season. So agreed. It's only a matter of time. Agreed. They're coming. Well, on that note, they're looking forward to the summer break coming out hot on the other side. How about, uh, let's just close us out here with the other, the other real notable battle on track Alpine McLaren neck and neck continue to battle it out. Alpine qualified fifth and sixth looked like they were going to have the advantage, uh, and then sort of lost it on, on strategy go into the hard. They, they deployed a, well, all right, I'll let you get your moment in, but they deployed a, a true proper one-stop strategy. Unfortunately, the hards did not have the pace that they were anticipating. Ultimately lost out to Norris should have lost out to Ricardo as well. Um, but some early contact with stroll. I'm sorry. I think it was late contact. Actually some contact with stroll in the race uh, led to a five second penalty and, and ruined Ricardo's chances of, besting an Alpine on this day. But you seem less impressed with the explanation that it was a pit strategy alone. What do you chalk up Alpine's uh, a bit of an underwhelming performance relative to their qualifying? 
I mean, Ocon is a total clown. I uh, <laughs> One of my what buddies is- texted me during the race with probably the quote of the weekend for me after the double overtake of Ricardo on both Alpines because of Ocon's fuckery and said that Ocon just made Daniel Ricardo look like Daniel Ricardo, which is a massive insult. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he inexcusably almost drives Alonso into the inside barrier off the start line and just opens this massive barn door for Hamilton to just waltz right through. Um, and then on the exit of the second or the first pit window, he comes out and battles Alonso and goes off the racing line to the outside of the track to cumber him off, and Ricardo just sits there opportunistically and just blows both the doors off. It it makes absolutely no sense. And I'll confess, I'm somebody who, um, you know, like literally just one year ago, Ocon won at the Hungara ring in the rain. He won that race. And remember that was the race when, uh, as you called out last week, Alonso had this crazy epic defense of Hamilton, who was surging through the field. And then there's this picture of Alonzo lifting Ocon into the air in Park Ferme like a fucking high school cheerleader celebrating. I thought he was going to rip his helmet off and kiss him. And I'm like, oh, man, what a great driver dynamic. You know? Like, Alonzo seems to, you know, he's a real competitive guy, and he's potentially a backstabber. He and Lewis Hamilton had an awful relationship with McLaren. Um, And I was like, man, what a nice dynamic. And then Ocon just spits in his damn face... And just does the most asinine stuff, seemingly just only motivated by spite for his teammate on the track. There's no other way I can explain it. Uh, I'm glad that Alonso doesn't have to put up with Ocon anymore. I'm just angry that now he's been replaced with Stroll, who's arguably the only alternative on the grid that will be there next year that was worse. So, anyway. So you've just totally chalked up uh, Ocon's driving to some sort of malicious intent. You don't think there was any sort of... I'm being uh, hyped. I'm being hyperbolic. I doubt he was being malicious, but at at best, he's just a moron. Like, there's just no reason why. I mean, especially, dude, there is a there is a still photo of those cars launching off the starting line where you literally see Ocon seemingly driving him into the inside barrier so far off the racing line. I mean, they just didn't do a good job as a team. Like, out of that pit stop, they easily should have been able to bottle up Ricardo had they driven together, I, it seemed like, uh, whereas on the start, I think it was Hamilton on the outside of that was coming up alongside Ocon. Correct. When Ocon was sort of Hamilton was coming up on the left. Ocon was moving over to the right to squeeze Alonzo. When in reality, he should have been forcing Hamilton out wider into turn one. And you could have had both drivers in a better position. So yeah, I think it was just bad, bad team play this weekend but um as you like to say you know that might have been the the straw that broke the alonzo camel's back and uh off to off to aston martin he goes for a well a zero improved driver lineup but <laughs> that'll have to be his problem to deal with i other than ricardo i mean he seems to have made while ricardo makes the best team decisions it seems like he's made some good decisions jumping to different teams and just failing to deliver on those. Alonzo Ricard- on the wait, other wait, hand, you think Ricardo's made good decisions jumping team to team? I mean, I think Renault when he was there was like top of the midfield. They were performing well. He left right as sort of McLaren was top of the midfield. Well, 
him leaving Red Bull, I think, was not really a. That was stupid. That was. I mean, really that was stupid. stupid. But that was a. You're never going to beat this guy. You want to be the number one, and you are just not going to do it against Verstappen. So I don't know if that was as much Dude. of a strategic decision as a, a pride thing. But his Renault and Mc, McLaren decisions had not been poor. Dude, if Ricardo had stayed at Red Bull, they maybe would have won the constructors last year. Actually, probably would have won the constructors last year. And he would be up there in terms of, like, most Grand Prix won in a driving career. Yeah, he was never going to beat Max, but, like, dude, look at the big picture. I I don't know. I, To me, the, 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 the unfortunate nature of the Ricardo leaving Red Bull decision supersedes any other seeming savviness mm. he's demonstrated in the driver market. But that's just me. But uh, your point big, you were making was that was on the big Alonso. inflection point for him. Yeah, the point you were making about to make on Alonzo, I think, is, is is dead on. Sorry, I, I cut you off. No, no, and it's not a surprise. I mean, that's a well-known sort of Alonzo yeah. character. Is just make it, still a phenomenal driver, able to get the most out of the car. He just opts for cars on the way down. He so. was so he was at Minotti for one year, and then he went to Renault. And he won two world titles in a span of several years. And then he went to McLaren for a hot second when they were with Mercedes. And then he went back to Renault. And then he went to Ferrari for like six years. Didn't, I mean, that car that was, was horrible. That was a train wreck. Yeah. Then to McLaren. That was a train McLaren, wreck. A bigger train wreck. That was when Honda came back in the sport, but like much worse than they did this recent stint with Red Bull. And then, uh, and then he was out of the sport for how many years? Two? Before yes, he came yeah. back with with yeah. Alpine, yep. And I didn't know if Alpine was actually going to be a good a good decision either, but they've turned out to be quite quite good. And now that goes by the wayside. So yeah, uh, he he likes a he likes a challenge. So you got to respect him for that. Well, I I truly do wish him the best at Aston Martin. I don't think he's going to be competing for podiums there. Uh, is my gut on it? I but it will make me. Similar to how Vettel made me feel about Aston, but maybe even to a higher degree, it will make me more sympathetic to them as a team because I just I really like him. If he can help develop that car, it would only make me frustrated to see Stroll doing that much better. So uh, a bit of a double edge double edged sword there. <laughs> uh, hopefully, Audi will own the team by then, and Stroll won't be around. So, all right, let's close it out with McLaren here. Um, Different form than many weekends this season. Good qualifying for both drivers. Fourth and ninth place. I mean, still quite a bit of a gap between Norris and Ricardo. Um, unlike most of the drivers on the grid, Norris ran his third stint on hards. Uh, and, and it was actually able to put up some pretty pretty good times as it showed in his his finishing position. Whereas Ricardo, his, his contact with Stroll effectively ended the race. But I do believe he did get a pass on. It was on uh, Alonzo sort of middle of the race, right? So it did look like McLaren was going to have the edge over Alpine uh, close of the week. But unfortunately, um, you know, that was short-lived. I don't have much to say about this one, man. I was just kind of like, they are who we thought they were. It was good to see Lando showing flashes and qualifying with single lap pace. That's what you expect to see from him. They seem to be making incremental gains in the car. And then, you know, Ricardo's just lost at sea. So, um well, and unfortunately, that he was sticking to my hypothesis of he's going to do just enough come the second half of the season to like maintain credibility in, in his seat, but then he's still making 
kind of foolish mistakes like he did on on stroll and it all all goes out the window and then you're left sort of shaking your head once again on what what the heck is this guy doing rest of the teams um from alfa romeo haas alfatari aston martin i mean pretty pretty underwhelming weekends across the board part of that was team performance uh some of that was imp contact like haas uh, driver performance, Sonoda spinning early, uh, and then for Alfa Romeo, hard tires. So, uh, not a lot to, to write home about for those folks, but before we move on, I think it is important that we note at the bottom of the grid here, Williams, they did have a very, very notice notable weekend. Uh, and we'd be remiss to not make mention of this, but, um, in an incredibly difficult, arduous, uh, uh, trying conditions in FP three, the rain pouring down, potentially setting the stage for qualifying in the race to come. Latifi comes out of nowhere and tops a practice session. I potentially for the first time in his career. Um, and, and I think just a phenomenal moment for the Williams team all around. I mean, what, what do you say about the, the excitement and the fanfare of, of that moment? Any reactions? Are you where, I guess the question is when you look back 20 years, are you going to be able to tell your friends, your family, your kids where you were on the moment that Latifi topped FP3? Nicholas Latifi. You receive no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> I, yeah. I look, dude. I, I, this got way more traction in racing news than it ever should have, and I get the sticker shock of seeing a number one next to Nichols Tipe's name. It was a rain. I mean, geez, like they were thirty seconds off of the single lap pace of qualifying in a rainy FP three, the day of qualifying, when everyone who has any sensibility is not going to risk it. And in my theory, being that he was one, Albon was three. I think Williams looked at the forecast. They're a team that's got to roll the dice to get results this year. I think they set the car up for the rain, hoping it would rain. They went all in on a strategy. They didn't get the wet, and then lo and behold. He's right back down to literally the very bottom of the grid <laughs> in qualifying. Uh, I would love to see a stat of the number of drivers in F1 history who have gone from first in FP3 to literally 20th in, Q- in Q1. I'm not sure that that's happened too many times. Another Congratulations. Uh, another notable uh, accolade he can add to the to the resume. Yeah. Uh, well, and the other thing that was hilarious about that is just completely failing to note the degree of track evolution in those last few minutes, because I think the rain had stopped and like literally if anyone else went out and put up any time, I think it was going to be faster than whatever Latifi did. So I, I think it was just so circumstantial. And yet, you know, you check the, anybody checks the numbers at the end and that's all they see, you know, questions start flying, but yeah, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit too much, too much hype. Well, I think that segues us nicely into our personal podium because in an attempt to to find a silver lining wherever I can for that team, I, I got to put Latifi on my personal podium. Jesus I mean, it's all Christ, about Gerald. it's all about small incremental gains, as Verstappen says, just striving for perfection, just getting a little bit better. Uh, and, and Latifi did that late in practice, so uh, props to him. Good job, Williams. You're a bleeding heart capitalist. You've never given a shit about the little people in our society, and for some reason tonight, you've decided. 
to go out of your way for the guys at the bottom of the barrel. And I just don't understand it, but good on you. Uh, uh, for me, I'm going to have to say uh, Verstappen, what I believe is truly historically good drive. And then Hannah, Hannah Schmitz, Red Bull, uh, much has been said about her already, but their strategy is just, they, they are the hunter and uh, they are, they're doing the hunting. Uh, so very impressive stuff. And, uh, and how about for your DNF of the week? Oh God. Uh, it's hard to, honestly, the hardest thing here is just picking which side of Ferrari to call out. I think, uh, honestly, I'd probably pick the Ferrari strategy team for showing up in the wrong outfit. I think clown noses and wigs would have been more appropriate just based upon how (laughs) things transpired. So, uh, yeah, they didn't come dressed properly for work. So Ferrari race strategists. And that stuff's pretty cheap, too. It really wouldn't hurt the cost cap too much. Nope. Nope. How about you? Uh, f- for myself, this is, uh, you know, I- I'll be I'm- I'll be honest. I'm surprised not to see Ocon on that list. I, I was certain, given the vitriol that you had queued up for him, he would have made it. But I can um... only pick one, man. It's tough. <laughs> I think for me, it's it's got to be Ricardo. Uh, oh, wow. Look, he... I was saying he was starting to turn the page, right? Shift the shift the whole narrative. Finally, had Quali pulled together, which has has really been the the sticking point. Um, and then he just squands it, squanders it on a on a stupid move against Stroll, locking up, going deep, and, and just punting him. And and so it just validates everything that was said earlier in the season. So, like you said, I think his contract's probably ironclad enough that it. From that standpoint, it really doesn't matter enough. But from the from the lens of credibility, um, you know, let's hope let's hope qualifying performance is what makes it into the second half of the year and not his his race form from this weekend. All right. Well, that leads us through the first half of the 2022 season and on to the summer break. Uh, looking at the other side of this. Race day in Spa, August 28th, so a full four weeks away from here. And as our pr- producer will be happy to know, a genuine four weeks, not three and a half, not not three weeks and a third, with this mon- episode coming out on a Monday, a full four weeks away from Spa. And then that kicks off a, a sort of classic track triple header with Spa, followed by Zandvoort, followed by Monza. Uh, so uh, an exciting lines up. By the way, how did we give Josh the, the the title of producer? He doesn't do jack shit for this podcast on a week to week basis. <laughs> I'd like to officially protest that, but anyway, neither. <laughs> I don't know. I heard I heard other famous shows they use this androgynous sort of producer character as like a as a third shadowy as figure a thir- as a third shadowy entity. So I figured we could pull him into that, but uh, maybe we'll we'll spitball that a little bit more. Not sold. All right. Well, with that. Uh, we'll see everybody back maybe August 29th, if we're lucky. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, until then enjoy the summer break, everybody. Peace.